Welcome back to the Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to say that we've not only got Panny back with us. Hi, Panny. Hello there. Hi there. And uh, we're also joined by the luminary, Liam Newton. Welcome back, Liam. It's great to have you back. <laughs> Hi, Sean. It's nice to be back. Brilliant, brilliant. We're going to be talking about the works of Eric Stewart today. And uh, I, I confess to being quite excited about this, although I'd, I'd kind of built up a picture in my mind of this moment and uh, I was kind of holding off for several months but uh, now it's here uh, I've got a, a, a feeling of relish in my stomach <laughs> it's been it's hard to get to the Eric stuff and uh, well once we get into it we'll you know people will know what we're talking about absolutely and uh, Paul welcome back to the podcast <laughs> Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> nice, um, nice to be here. Yeah, Paul, you've been kind enough to, to throw some nuggets fr- from the early 60s and mid-60s at me recently, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, and, and you as our kind of in-house researcher, can I throw the ball into your court and get you to kick off? Uh, I'll, I'll try. Uh, Eric uh, Michael Stewart, I believe it is, um, shares a middle name with, with Kevin, which is interesting. Uh, born in 1945 and um, interested in music very early on and a precocious talent on the guitar. Mm. Um, and as will become uh, obvious quite shortly, he was the first of the four um, to get any success, uh, really predating uh, Graham in a way. I was standing the first band he joined, I think, was Jerry Lee and the Stagger Lees, I think, from memory. Um, okay. Right, I think yeah. that was the first band he was with, and then he moved on to, um, uh, well, maybe they changed their name to the Emperor's with them, but I think the first band was Jerry Lee and the Stagger Lees. His first proper band uh, was the Emperors of Rhythm, um, which he was in by 1962. It's interesting, the, the northern music scene was very much smaller in those days. He tells an interesting story in his book uh, how he went to an audition at the, uh, the Playhouse in South Manchester, Playhouse Theatre, and uh, he was auditioning with his band alongside the Beatles, who came in. Hmm. We have this. We have this dated to the eighth of February, nineteen sixty-two. Now, in Eric's book, he doesn't quite get it accurate. I believe he says that the Beatles failed the audition and the Emperors of Rhythm passed the audition. Well, he's, he's got that completely ass about face because <laughs> we have we ha- we have it on very good authority uh, from no less than Mark Lewison, actually, who confirmed this for me that. Um, that was the audition that the Beatles uh, obtained their first um, national radio exposure when they went back to the theatre a month later. And, and the Emperors of Rhythm didn't pass it. And I think, um, Liam, you interviewed the, um, the guitarist in, in your book and he confirmed that the Emperors of Rhythm did fail. Is that, is that correct? 
Yeah, it was a, it was a, that was a piece of research on that particular particular quote. But I, but I think yes, he he says that they, uh, he, you know, his his recollection was that both bands failed. I think when we were talking about this uh, earlier in the week, Paul, I think we've also uncovered. I guess the Beatles did pass, but I guess it was a bit of a split vote, wasn't it? In terms of it was at all, it was just about passing because we understand they they played four songs. They got a no on two of them and a, and a yes on two of them, and then but overall a yes. Right. So maybe that was part of the confusion as to what you know. Some people taking away a recollection that the Beatles failed when ultimately they passed. Maybe that's that's the heart of the confusion. Mm. You're right. Maybe we should cut Eric a break here because I mean, a it's a long, long time ago, and and b yeah, maybe the documentation isn't unassailable. Yes, they 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 did get from that audition to the BBC, but maybe if they mingled. Uh, you know, at the time, the Beatles may well have thought they'd blown it, and maybe if they got chatting, that was the impression they gave. Right, and yeah, for sure, yeah. Yeah, uh, so that that's 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 quite that's quite possible. Mm. But I just wanted to bring out how you know how all these bands were part of the same hive, if you like, moving around in the same circles, playing the same clubs. Um, and Eric was gigging hard, you know, in '62 uh, into '63 with, with the Emperors. Then he had a, a very significant breakthrough. Uh, apparently, he was sitting in the uh, in the Oasis Club, which was uh, co-owned by Rick Dixon, who, of course, became Eric's manager and played a huge part in the 10CC story, therefore, as well. Yeah. Um, when uh, Wayne Fontana, who was due to audition with a group of other musicians, came in desperate because the other guys had just hadn't turned up and recruited... Uh, Eric there and then and mm-hmm. and he became he came a mind bender uh, or a jet as I think they were originally That's called right. but shortly um, shortly a mind bender at that point which was in May 63 and that was a big breakthrough for him and he was uh, just just over 18 at that point That's right and I think Eric looks back all the time doesn't he with gratitude to that that moment that pivot moment in his career that that got that got the whole thing kick started yeah, uh, uh, didn't they also get Bob Lang, the bass player, at the same audition? Is that, is that That's right? right. At the, in the same cafe, I should say. I think actually Bob Lang was the only one that did turn up. Oh, I um, see. Okay. I think it was Rick Rothwell, the drummer that was also sat there, that got got roped in. And I think the interesting thing is that they played this uh, these four songs for the for the audition, which is an interesting mix of they did uh, Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. Uh, Fats Domino's My Girl Josephine, which ultimately they recorded as their their first single. And then I think a big thing in those days was to try to demonstrate your versatility. So they played Zippity Doodah, would you believe, <laughs> was the uh, the third one, which I think had been actually recently revived by Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans or something like that. So no, it's three. Oh, the Phil it was, Spector uh, those thing. Three things. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Because um, to your to your point, Paul, I think you know it was such a vibrant. You know, you know, from I, I hear this from. Uh, from Eric Graham and and Kevin from the interviews about just how exciting it was as a, mm. a scene, I guess, at that time because you've got all these teenage kids, I guess, who are all, all wanting to be Hank Marvin or you know or got these aspirations, you know, getting sort of weaned on on rock and roll. And we all know about the kind of first records that they each of the guys sort of bought and, and got into, and um, and all these clubs that are starting to emerge in in Manchester at the same time, you know, dozens of clubs. You know, with h- literally hundreds of groups sort of forming and emerging, and I'm very often playing the same songs, which is why they were able to sort of, 
Wayne Fontana was able to sort of rope Eric in and say, look, can you help me out? Because it was the same songs that, you know, Eric was playing with his bands. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, won- it's wonderful, isn't it? Sorry, Paddy. It's like something out of a musical. It's like, let's mm. let's do the show right here. I mean, it's a yeah. fantastic, fantastic moment. Uh, that. Yeah, when I when I study, um, you know, the UK music scene and, you know, kind of the birth of it, you know, with all these bands from Manchester, from Liverpool, from even London, uh, it's amazing to me, um, you know, what a big pool of, I mean, you look, you look at how many people are connected and it's just amazing that even through the years, a lot of these people say connected and even Eric, you know, later connecting to McCartney and working mm-hmm. on, you know, the McCartney albums in the early 80s. Uh, but they, you know, they had been friends and acquaintances for, you know, 25, 30 years, even at that point. And it's just amazing how everybody knew everybody. And this is the thing that I'm always fascinated with when I look at that period of time in the UK uh, music scene. I go ape every time I see you smile. I'm a ding-dong gorilla and I carry on caveman style. No, I say the other interesting thing is for me is uh, when you hear about you know the first record that Eric bought you know which was I Go Ape by uh, Neil Sedaka you know given the, the you know the way that their paths would cross you know in uh, I guess 10 15 whatever it was 10 years later uh, I think it's I Go Ape was the first record with Dream Lover by Bobby Darin and then Please Don't Touch by Johnny Kidd and the uh, the Pirates. They were the, the first three records that he bought. And I think there's that story of um, of him putting them on the record player and sort of blasting them out with the windows open, you know, shouting out to his mates, you know, listen to this. So it just <laughs> up how, how excited they all were in their own way, whether it's Kevin listening to Hound Dog or, you know, Graham's first record, I think, was Kathy's Clown by the Everly Brothers. It was such a vibrant, exciting uh, scene at that point. Hello, Josephine. How do you do? Do you remember me, baby? Like I remember you, child. You slept at me. I was a fool, fool. So tell us about that, uh, the Josephine record that, that was Wayne Fontana's debut, wasn't it? Yeah, was on, it a fast... on the Fontana label, uh, which I, I I always find amusing. Yeah, which I I imagine is just a complete coincidence. Yeah, um, it was a Fat Domino song, or he popularised yes. it. Is that right, yeah, Liam? That's right. That's correct. Yeah, uh, I think that's right. Slightly retitled uh, as "Hello Josephine" and the way that the Mindbenders released it and uh, yeah it was uh, it got to number 46 in the charts in July 1963 so and that was the first that's an important uh, point because that was the first hit that any of the four guys were involved in and uh, in Liam's book of course you have this this great compendium of every hit that any of the four of them have been involved in as either a performer writer uh, what have you in, in, in any way and and there are how many is Elliam it's hundreds isn't it I think it's 112 I think by the latest count wow that wow. is astonishing and this was the very first one so a re- really important moment in the 10cc story definitely and you can hear Eric so loud and clear can't you with his rhythm guitar and his solo it's fantastic oh, yeah. to hear that I think it's a great rocker and I mean it's uh, very typical of, of a lot of the early uh, 
you know, British, you know, pop music from that time. I mean, covering an American song and trying to add a bit of a, you know, an English touch to it, even though the American influences, you know, come through loud and clear. Yeah. And that was the irony of the British invasion, wasn't it, Panny? That basically we were recycling the stuff that, that you'd given us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's so many records that are cover versions. I mean, I think of so many things. I mean, even going up to like even Hermit's Hermit's doing I'm Into Something Good, which, you know, isn't, you know, it's more of a pop record that was done by a girl group here in the States, which I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, it, it's amazing how many of these early records just have that that uh, American influence and, and then, you know, the Brit rockers trying to add a little bit of soul to it, and you know, and you hear the influences of people like you know Elvis and Chuck Berry, and mm. and you know so many others, uh, Eddie Cochran, you know, so, you know some of those early uh, late fifties, early sixties uh, U.S. rockers. Um, it, it's it's kind of interesting to me, you know, because I always have a tendency to go back and try to find the original when I know it's a cover version of yes. an American artist. <laughs> Yeah, but it's always always fun to hear it thrown back at you with a Manchester accent, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, apologies to yeah. anyone who's ever been to Manchester. That will know yeah, well, well, how, what a bad attempt that was. Well, I live there, and I, even I wouldn't even I wouldn't attempt a Manchester accent. I, I leave I leave that to my kids. No, that's right, that's right. <laughs> They've got the real thing. Yeah. Well, talking about going back, in a, we're just a little ahead of ourselves. But in a minute, we're going to go back to the 19th century. Uh, to get mm. the original version of a track, but we'll save that for a little bit later. Nah. I've been waiting all night long for you, for you, for you. You know, they all trotted down to London. I, I guess that's, you know, one of the interesting experiences of of Eric in these early days is, you know, the experience of going down to London, trying to find songs on Denmark Street where, where mm. all the publishers were, uh, because clearly, you know, very few bands were writing their own material in those days. So you were kind of knocking on the doors and, as Panny was saying, you know, I guess the publishers would save their most promising songs for the more sort of successful bands, and therefore a lot of the, the you know the the new groups had to sort of settle for hit, for songs that have been hits in the in the US. Yeah. Um, and you know, Eric's early experience of being in the studio was that um, you know the control room was out of bounds. You know, it was the guys in literally in white coats, <laughs> the sort of boffins up there, and they were kind of you know churning out i think they, they recorded their first album in a in a in a day i think on a on a three track um system but i think they they had a number of um sort of follow-up singles having hit sort of number 46 as as paul said but i think the next sort of set of, of singles that they had um didn't work so they i think they had um for you for you little darling and the duke of earl i think were the next uh, three singles that were released yeah. none of which troubled the charts and then the fifth single was a cover version of Benny King's Stop, Look and Listen, which did scrape into the sort of uh, the top 40. But I think by that point, you know, there was an element of, I, I guess, you know, I wouldn't say the start of the division with, within the band, but, you know, I guess your know, confidence starts to uh, to dip a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then there's that lovely story, though. I think they were still touring, you know, hugely at the at the time. There's that lovely story where their fans in, the, uh, in Liverpool sort of signed this petition to the uh, to the to Bob Wooler, who was the compare at the the cavern, to say that we haven't because obviously um, the Mindbenders have played at the cavern. We haven't we haven't kind of seen them recently. So dated, I think it was October '64, 
they sort of send him a note sort of saying, you know, dear Bob, you know, we haven't seen the band for a while. Can we get them on? And that was also signed by the Rolling Stones because mm. the Rolling Stones and Wayne Fontaine and the Man Band has toured quite a lot. Well, they were they kind of, their paths crossed quite a lot. So they were quite friendly uh, right. together. And actually just the Stones would... Um, would help to kind of promote Wayne Fontana and the Winebenders, you know, in those early kind of days. Um, and then you get this lovely period where you get all these other people, actually. They, they clearly had a lot of potential because you had, whether it was Jonathan King making a first appearance or whether it was actually Brian Epstein um, or even um, Andrew Oldham, um, mm-hmm. they all saw potential and they all wanted, you know, to, uh, they all thought they could help. The mind, Wayne Fontana, you know, broke breakthrough, and ultimately it was a different path. But you know, to have Jonathan King, Brian Epstein, and um, Andrew Oldham all in short succession trying to sort of give them a foot up, I think is really interesting. Definitely the the Svengali triumvirate. And he just go. They eventually did break through with with a hit. What was um 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 um? And apologies if I'm either missing or uh, adding an extra um on there. Was that their first? Was that their first big hit, um, Liam? Yes, this is six ums there, Paul. For Thank technical. you. I, th- yeah. I think it was one short. We can edit an extra one. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I thought I was sad for counting all the A's in guitars, <laughs> but um, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> Isn't um 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 how many how many uh isn't it's a major Lance record I believe uh it's another U.S. soul singer okay correct written right. by Curtis Mayfield and Crash right. Crash Test oh, Dummy really? Crash Test yep. Dummies had a song called um 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 um, um didn't they <laughs> too yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. we digress I believe <laughs> but you're right but you're right it was that that was the big hit it was a top five um, hit in December '64 um, right. spending five weeks in the in the top ten and I think. Um, that was the big breakthrough uh, for them, um, you know, followed by the, the sort of the first album, this album that they recorded, a, you know, in a day. Yeah. Uh, and that's where we first start hearing. I mean, I think, you know, there's a few early compositions with Eric writing for the first time. I think um, the first one for me that sort of stands out is the is the song One More Time. Let's try again. Um, which is a joint composition between Eric and, and Wayne Fontana, and it's you know it's pretty derivative as a as a song, but it's been given a nice kind of I think atmospheric um, production, and I think that was probably the, I think that was the only original composition on that on that first album. But it's interesting to go back and listen to those you know those first forays into songwriting. Sure, right. And that was the, one of the that was the B side of of Game of Love. You were saying, Liam, yeah. One I think I mean I think in America it was I think well, one more time was on their first album. I think it was used as a B-side. Um, I think in, whether it was in the US version of Game of Love, but originally it was an, it was an album track. That's where it was uh, originally intended. Sure. And the Game of Love, a real uh, game changer, as it were, because it reached number one in the states, n- number two uh, in the UK, I think. Yeah, and, and uh, a, hit, a hit all over the world, really, wasn't it? And that was a real high watermark for Manchester music. Uh, you had three Manchester acts uh, 
at, at number one in the charts in America for six weeks altogether in succession. There was Herman's Hermits and Freddie and the Dreamers um, and the Mind Menders, uh, all represented by Kennedy Street Enterprises, mm. uh, which uh, very shortly thereafter, Harvey Lisberg was to gain a uh, 50% stake in, and it was already... Um, uh, Danny Batesh was already involved in Kennedy Street Enterprises at that stage, I think. Um, so again, every, everything, uh, all, the, all these people mo very much moving together, moving in the same circles. You know, with these two top five hits behind them, they were they were invited to be part of this um, NME Paul Winners concert. I guess it used to happen at what's now Wembley Arena was mm. I guess, oh, yeah. the end of Wembley the by Paul, Paul. And, yeah. and when you look at the the uh, the lineup for this gig you know you've got you've got Wayne Fontana the Mindbenders there but you've got the Rolling Stones the Kinks the Beatles you know all on the on the bill and I think that's that's the first recorded although you know um, Eric had seen Paul McCartney at this audition the first time that they I think properly Met was actually at that at that um, poll winners gig uh, in April, you know, I guess 1965. Mm. And uh, although the friendship would evolve a lot later, I think they they kind of hit it off pretty much straight away. Put your arms around me, hold me tight, play the game of love. Yeah, it's interesting, and your your book mentions this that Paul was the one out of the four that Eric was, you know, got friendly with at that at that evening. Um, yeah, that that that. Uh, the Mindbenders' performance, and maybe some of the other bands, not the Beatles, because the, the cameras were turned off for the Beatles, I think, or maybe I've got that wrong. But uh, th th that's on YouTube, isn't it? Um, yes. And uh, they're great. I mean, we see that all the way through, the Mindbenders are a terrific live act. And, and in fact, that's borne out perhaps even more after Fontana leaves, because you're left with almost like a power trio. Mm. But even, you know, even amongst the screams and the difficult conditions in the the empire pool as it was then then you know wembley arena to be renamed they, they sound they sound great the, i mean uh the vocals are terrific wayne fontana's vocals too and eric and bob lang on the backup mm -hmm. fantastic what happened then between those giddy gigs uh, where they were really cooking as a band um, what happened between then and and Wayne leaving the band? Was it just a big fallout with Eric specifically, or with the whole band? Well, I think I mean I think the the, the challenge is the classic one around um, you know following up the big hit. You know they were on a roll. They'd had you know the six ums and uh, and the game of love, both top <laughs> top five hits, mm. and then and then they they had Clint Ballard Jr. I think had written the game of love, and they they then had this decision to make they were offered two songs to record as the as their next single one of them was i'm alive um and the other and the other one Ouch. was just just a little bit too late and unfortunately they chose the um the latter one no no And the other song obviously was given to the Hollies um, and became a number one hit. And I think that's the point. I think that that Wayne Fontana looks back and goes, "That was that decision that that started uh, the unraveling of the band." Because I guess then 
they got they released some more records that were you know minor hits you know they were sort of you know hitting the sort of top 40 mm. but they weren't um hitting the heights and i think you had a division in the band i think i think wayne fontana wanted to be more of a more of a crooner he was more a kind of pj proby yeah. you know that that crooner kind of thing and i think you know eric and the rest of them were more you know more blues r&b sort of bass so i th- think those kind of genuine musical differences yeah exactly they wanted they wanted to be cream didn't they <laughs> yes and and became they... cream eventually but and and of course we heard wayne last in the last pod didn't we paul um we, he's he's singing uh, graham's song together yes so that that's slightly operatic yes. so uh he, he and he has got a very big voice mm. uh so uh, with a great range yeah so sort of diverging directions it's it's a common story within the music business of course. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and they probably did the, the the right thing didn't they for that for their own musical peace of mind looks to me like the mindbenders had a wonderful start to life without wayne i mean what a yeah. massive hit yes uh, this is where we need to uh reference the 19th century uh mm-hmm. are, are you guys uh, aware that uh, groovy kind of love which is written uh, by Carol Bayer Sager and, and Tony Wine is is based melodically uh, on a classical piece. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm reading my notes here. Muzio Clementini, uh, Sonata, uh, Opus 35, number five, Rondo, I think is the full title. And mm. I'm sure we can in, insert a bit of that into the pod. Um, and and is, Clementi, it's, is Clementi the composer, Paul? Yes, he's he's a composer. I yeah. don't. Does any does anybody know about him? I, I must admit, I don't know anything about him. I don't. No, no. It sounds Italian. No, I... That's probably all I can tell you there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and we, we'll hear uh, a bit. We'll we'll have to imagine hearing a little bit of this on the pod. But yes. wh- which bits did they did they nick from that then, Paul? Uh, just the tune in its entirety, really. really? <laughs> yeah. You can cut my version and replace it with uh, Clementini's, now, but that, that's 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 what it is. Now, call <laughs> me call me a classicist, Paul, but that I think that would stand up in court. <laughs> well, yeah, but it wouldn't, would it? Because no, uh, because they they, they they lapse after seventy years or something, don't they? Yeah. Public yes. At that point, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I, 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 cheeky. We should uh, cheeky, but I mean, having said that, what um, Tony Wine and Carol Bayer Sager did was write a fantastic pop song, and those uh, those guys were eighteen years old as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, do, do you know, know what? what sorry, you... sorry, Paul, to interrupt. Yeah. Um, I really like the original version, actually. It's a, I was just going to mention it. Yeah, but go ahead. Uh, Diane and Anita, is that what their names were? Uh, Diane Hall and Anita Ray. Uh, right. I wasn't f- familiar with this version at all, and it says it was only issued in France. When I'm feeling blue, all I have to do is take a look at you. Then I'm not so blue. When you're close to me, I can feel your heart beat. I can hear you breathing. Honey, do you, do you know the original version? I, I, I've heard it, um, but I, I, you know, I did a little research to try to find out about uh, Diane Hall and Anita Ray, and there's just so little uh, mm-hmm. about them. Um, you know how they came across the song, um, you know, and who they were. If they're friends of, uh, you know, uh, Carol Bayer uh, Sager down in L.A., or you know, it's not really clear, you know, who they are. Uh, 
I think the version is, you know, interesting because it's just, you know, such a poppy yeah. uh, teenage love ballad, you know, like a, I, I can imagine, you know, four or five girls sitting in the bedroom with a little 45 player playing this <laughs> record. But, yes, exactly. I think it's a really, really sweet version, actually. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I, I mean, I'm really surprised that Wayne Fontana, well, actually at that point, you know, the Mindbenders after Wayne Fontana had left, um, had decided uh, to do it, you know, because it just seems, you know, if they wanted to be more of a pop, you know, bluesy band, and here they are doing this pop mm. record like that, it just it just seems so ironic to me. Weren't they placed? Wasn't the song placed with them? Do you know about this, Liam? It was their it was their A and R man, Jack Baverstock, I think, who'd worked. Right. Who who's the guy? I think originally had signed them. You know, he was the person that sat them down, I think, and said, um, "We've got this song. I've got this song that I think would really suit your voice, Eric." You know, he mm. apparently didn't feel it would have suited um, uh, Wayne's voice. Yeah, and you know, as we know, you know, Eric was uh, at that time. He, he's a bit of a reluctant frontman. He didn't. We didn't really want to be the uh, the lead vocalist. So he kind of did it. You know, uh, uh, he, I guess he'd been he'd been singing certainly backing vocals and, and maybe lead vocals and a few album tracks. But it was Jack Baverstock, I think, who who sort of suggested the song. And right. um, as you say, what a what a what an amazing start. You know, it's that dream thing, isn't it? When bands, you know, when your band splits, particularly when the lead the lead singer leaves, and I guess the lead everyone expects the lead singer to succeed. And actually, mm. I think I think Wayne's first single, I think, was you know, I don't think it was a was a hit, yeah. and they come out with this record that was sort of number two, you know, pretty much everywhere. I mean, it's a dream mm -hmm. start, isn't it, for the band? Absolutely. Absolutely. When you're close to me. It's wonderful watching those clips of of Eric um, looking a little bit shy, uh, but <laughs> but gorgeous, and and um, <laughs> you, you can sort of I think you sense that he's warming to the to the adulation, and I, it's wonderful. It's a great vocal for a start. It almost doesn't yeah. sound like Eric, does it? No, no, and I, I think that's the theme I'd like to come back to because. Um, you know, there's something about Eric's vocal. I mean, for me, he's he's one of my favourite, you know, vocalists. You know, yes. without a shadow of a doubt. But he, that that period of his of, it, of him sort of reaching that point starts for me with sheet music. Um, I think something happens before sheet music where it, suddenly his vocal goes to a whole different level because it's, a, it, it's they're good vocals beforehand. But if you listen to Mindbender's records or even Hotlegs records. Um, their solid vocal performances where you suddenly move on to sheet music mm. and it just goes up to another level. So we'll come back to that absolutely yeah. later on. Couldn't agree Can more. It's a hit all the way around that song. It's a gorgeous song. I mean, yes. yeah, okay, it started out as a classical piece, but when it's slowed down and one or two of the chords, are, you know, pop chords are changed around, I mean, it's it's one of the melodies of all time. It's, uh, I think it's a it's it's a, it's a fabulous song, um, and uh, there's you know obviously there've been lots of versions of it, but I think we could say that the definitive version is the Mindbenders version. Oh, I think I, I so. And and of course um, we're talking about Eric's vocal on it, which is great, but arguably yeah. he's putting in an even better vocal performance on on the B side, isn't he? People say that love is a blind cause they've been hurt. They've been hurt. People say that 
I'm right in thinking that Eric wrote that, aren't I? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a tremendous vocal. It's it reminds me a bit of the Yardbirds. It's a bit kind of Spencer Davis group, and uh, you know that can't be a bad thing in my book. I, I think for an early Eric Stewart track, um, you know, he getting back to something that you guys were just mentioning about Eric and his singing. I think Eric was trying to find his voice and trying to find, um, you know, his sound and his personality in terms of a singer. And even with the song, I mean, his singing is very inspired in the song. And I think that going back and listening to this again, I hadn't heard it in quite a while. Mm. Uh, the, the song for it, you know, is of its time and it's a bit primitive. And yeah. Again, I think Eric is trying to find his ropes, trying to find his reins, you know. To yeah, and he's, he's being a bit derivative, isn't he, I suppose? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it lacks, you know, the real, it's, it's you know, it's a good it's a good record, but it's not a great record, you know, and it, and it just lacks so many things because of its time and, you know, the mm. way it was recorded. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think it was a good start for Eric. I agree. And I think their, their next single was, I mean, they were deliberately obviously trying to follow in the footsteps of groovy kind of love weren't they same songwriter and i mm. i love the follow-up can't live with you can't live without yeah. you when you're close to me you just seem to be i love it, it it's I have it. It's in my in my tummy alongside "Walk on By." Yeah, I've I've put pet sounds mm. in my notes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jazzy chords. And, and uh, Eric's guitar solo is wonderful as well. Mm. It's a real. It's a kind of slow burn. Maybe not destined to be a big hit, actually. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but a, a great follow up. You're right, yeah. though. It's got that those lovely kind of pre psychedelic interesting instrumentation the jazzy chords the plinky plonky bass and guitar which sounds so gorgeous I, 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 I love it to death actually it's a very very subtle piece um, it, I'm almost surprised it's great the top 30 in the UK actually yeah mm. it's a great great record just just to, I completely agree yeah it's one of my favorite favorite uh, Mindbenders tracks mm. really is just try just a little bit I bet you're a fan of Ashes to Ashes as well, aren't you, Liam? I'm not so much. I quite. I mean, I like Ashes to Ashes. It, you know, it's it, it's it's fine. And interesting, interestingly, groovy kind of love. Uh, can't live with you. Can't live without you. And Ashes to Ashes. They're all you know, Bayer and Wine songs. You know, because mm -hmm. I guess they were on a on a street. But of the three of them, I think. I mean, as, as Paul says, groovy kind of love is a is a sort of classic record. But my probably my favourite of them is Can't Live with You. Can't live without you. I just think. It's a, it's a great record. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I like Ashes to Ashes. I think it's a nice song. It's a bit mm -hmm. more twee, I suppose. Uh, but mm. the melody's lovely. How can you look me straight in the eye Say I should try to forget you Living my loving Everything to you Let all my kisses go through 
there's an interesting an interesting thing that I hear uh, in in uh, particularly at this time around '66. It sounds to, to my ears that Eric is double double tracking his lead vocals, and um, I hadn't heard that previously with the with the Wayne Fontana stuff, and you never hear Eric double tracking a lead vocal from 10cc onwards unless I'm mistaken. So maybe he was just kind mm-hmm. of following the the kind of LA fashion uh, of of doing it. I mean, a lot of a lot of record producers were double or triple tracking the lead vocal. Um, and it sounds kind of yeah. out. It sounds out of place for Eric, um, and that, that's one of the reasons for me that his his voice sounds so so different to the voice that would come to the fore in um, you know in '73. That's really interesting, Sean. I've never thought about that. In fact, well, it's it's kind of a little bit woolly sounding, but it's got a nice ring hmm. to it, and and I think yeah. that's why the, the record producers double tracked lead vocals because it did create this lovely shimmery chorus effect. It sounded very sunny. Yeah, I, I wanted to add for both of these songs, "Can't Live With You," "Can't Live Without You," and "Ashes to Ashes." I, I think they were again of their of their time, and to me. I find that they kind of lean towards an imitation of either the Righteous Brothers or the Walker Brothers and mm-hmm. stuff. They were at the time. Not um, a bad thing, Danny. Not a bad thing. Yeah, it's not a bad thing. And, and it was very popular, like you said, Sean, to, to double track things and to make the you know the vocals more full. You know, you know, a la Phil Spector. Um, I think there's a you know both of these tracks lean towards that, and you know, and Ashes to Ashes, as Paul has said, does kind of have. Uh, you know, uh, a ring of pet sounds to it and the things that Brian Wilson was doing. And, you know, it has the echo effects and, you know, some of those other things. And it holds up, interestingly, you know, as a track. I, I, again, the thing that kind of kills it for me, the, the lyrics tend to be a little bit trite and predictable, you know. Uh, but but again, it, it does, uh, you know, the, the track as a whole does make an impression Yes. Uh, to those things. Sure. Just before we move on to the psychedelic era, I just want to mention t- two things. Uh, one is an important date for our diary. On, on the 7th of March, 1966, Eric uh, married Gloria, mm. uh, which means that they've now already celebrated their uh, 54th wedding anniversary, which, oh. is, which is lovely. That's quite something, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is, isn't it? Um, and uh, the, the other... Uh, have you seen on YouTube, um, and I, I imagine the, the groovy kind of love clip comes from the same concert. There's a great concert in uh, Hamburg. It was filmed in early July with, uh, with the three-piece really operating at full throttle and sounding, sounding marvellous. Uh, there's a really fun bit where uh, Eric is briefly interviewed uh, by the, the German presenter, and he sounds really Manchester as well. He hasn't, <laughs> he hasn't got the kind of soft Cheshire 
sound of, of later on he's, he sounds like a real mank you know so it's quite <laughs> quite amusing fantastic uh, first of all it's a great pleasure to have you on the show do you enjoy doing it oh yeah it's fantastic you know being here with all these bebop stars and things like that <laughs> yeah great gig yeah and and the beatles connection again if i'm if i may because i thought that date looked familiar and i think the mindbenders gig was july the first 66 and the beatles played hamburg you know, it, it, just a few days prior, the end of June '66. So they were still kind of crossing paths. Okay, they were they were playing in different uh, venues, but um, yeah, there's some kind of uh, right. connection going on there. Sure, sure. I close my eyes and soon I'm feeling sleepy. I sleep so easy. There's nothing on my mind. Can I just mention a couple of other songs, or is please, it, is do, any, please do, else? please do. Uh, there's two. Uh, firstly, um, I Want Her, She Wants Me by oh, Ron yes. Argent, which was later on Odyssey and Oracle. Uh, that was an A-side by the Mindbenders. Um, not as good as the Zombies version, but but noteworthy that they that they recorded it. And also, we can't forget Schoolgirl, which was, of course, yeah. A, yeah. A, gra- a great Graham Goldman song before he'd actually joined the band, I think, but written by him mm. um, yeah. and produced by him f- for the Mindbenders. You are the schoolgirl with seven GCEs for one ambition was to collect degrees but in a library researching English lit she met a student who took a mind of it. A, a great lyric, quite a quite a hard, a hard-hitting lyric there about um, uh, a sort of uh, pregnant teenager and in fact the record was banned by the BBC. Uh, the lyric, again, it's, it's got to be Jaime here with some of his rhymes. In a library researching English lit, she met a student who took her mind off it. She, fa- <laughs> she found him later when she was growing big. He studied nature. She was a guinea pig. And then he left her. I think, I think, it's, I think it's a terrific lyric. Studied nature, that's such a euphemism, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's a rocking track. If it had hadn't been banned I think that could have been it. Mm. It's really full of energy love it she found a later when she was growing big he studied nature she'd been a guinea pig and then he left her we've hit it all before though educated she didn't know the school it was banned because of the, the subject matter because it was about teenage pregnancy I think you know a pregnancy out of wedlock I think as simple as that I believe yeah. that's why it was banned yeah okay that's not Eric singing is it yeah yeah, I mean, talk about him being a bit of a chameleon. Could yeah. it could it be Bob Lang, uh, Liam? I'm just asking that because he's a decent singer himself. I, 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 I mean, I, I've always, when I've listened to it, heard Eric, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know for for sure, but it mm-hmm. it, it sounds to me like it's a, an Eric vocal. I mean, there's two there's two versions of that song, as you probably know. There's they recorded yeah. it originally for the album. I think the, they recorded it, and and obviously somebody it was just an album track. Then obviously somebody had the idea of of re-recording it with Graham producing it, and I think there's a few lyrical changes that kind of Graham made to make the point a bit more uh, oh, forcibly, right. I guess. So mm-hmm. and maybe that's what tipped it over the edge. The other interesting thing is that it was also um, there's a version of it I think by the Hollies uh, because yes. they recorded Schoolgirl for their Evolution album, but they never they never kind of completed it. But there is a sort of uh, a version of that knocking around, um, I guess, before the Mindbenders recorded it or around that kind of similar sort of time okay. but no i agree with you. it's great it's a great single and the chorus 
uh, all is pure to the pure, all is sure to the pure. That was lifted uh, and used as a part of uh, "You Stole My Love" on a re-recording for the for the um, and another thing album, right? With with Andrew That's right. Rowling. Yeah. All is pure to the listening to Fruity Rooties earlier on and uh, kind of half enjoying uh, guitars. I know that's my, my second mention of it tonight. <laughs> and uh. the story that's being told in guitars, I think, has so many echoes to Eric's real, if you like, musical journey. And the reason I mention it now is because I find it quite amusing, the sudden um, violent shift you've got in the style of the Mindbenders from the kind of girly pop, if you like, into this smelly hippie rock. And uh, <laughs> I, I like what they turn into in, in 67, actually. Kind of a, they turn into the move all of a sudden, don't they? I was feeling stale, so I jumped my bill, moved to Marrakesh and joined the people who talked of flowers, got my incense sticks and my sitar licks, smoked my demon weed, and I smiled all the time. Yeah, you're right. I think the influences of all the other things going on in the music business really, uh, I, I think a lot of bands at the time really found that they had to do something in the same vein to, to keep up if you like yes and, and music was changing kind of at yeah. a, a molecular level every every month wasn't it absolutely and, and it's you know to get caught up in that I mean some of these records you know after 66 um, 67 uh, they're interesting records but they're not great records because I think they're trying to copy and try to uh, imitate some of the other things that are going on. Yeah, I mean, and, covering the letter, for example. I mean, a lot of people a lot of people had a, had a crack at covering that, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. I think the problem that I think Eric mentions is that they, they got themselves into this rut because, you, you know, you become famous for a certain style of music. So for most, I guess, record buyers, it was the groovy kind of love type song that they were they were known for but but I, but I think it's interesting is it's on the b-sides where you get to see the, the sort of true colors of the band because yes. that's where you start to see more of eric's compositions um coming through and they're a different right. completely different band on the b-sides than they are on the a-sides definitely but my new day and age <laughs> Yes, and I think, uh, but you, you can imagine from a record company point of view, you know, that you, you're trying to adopt some kind of formula, you know, whereas mm -hmm. I think the B-side, you see the true colours. And as you say, you know, there's a, there's a whole series of, of, of records on the B-sides, the latter B-sides. You know, the one I particularly like is um, The Man Who Loved Trees, I think is a really fantastic record, much more interesting than, than what was on the, uh, the A-side. But yeah, you've got My New Day and Age, you've got Yellow Brick Road, and, and that's, I think, the first time where you sort of start to see 
um, you know, Eric's songwriting start to uh, to evolve properly. Dreaming of the colour of the golden art to me Yeah, my new day and age. I don't know whether it's a complete musical breakthrough, but lyrically, uh, Eric's voice is heard loud and clear. His social conscience is 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 heard for the first time on that song, yes. which 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 is a thread going all, all the way through his career. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's an important song, I think. I agree. One. And did did Graham produce both the A side and the B side here, Paul, or was it just the mm. letter that he produced? Uh, he produced the the letter and. It's B-side Yellow Brick Road, I think. Yes, yeah. In fact, I'm, lo- yeah. I'm, I'm looking at our famous track sheets right here. Wish you could see them. I've got, I've got the, um, the tape box for the letter right in front of me. Oh, wow. Uh, it's uh, recorded, it just says the 16th of the 8th. Is that 67 or 68? Not sure. 67. 67. Yeah. yeah. Engineer Eddie Kramer. Yeah. Uh, and then this other one, both both, both these are, are Olympic sound. Um, they're both produced, um, yeah, both boxes produced by Graham Goldman. The other track, Yellow Brick Road, the engineers are Eddie and Phil with two L's. We came across this one before, Paul, I think yeah, when we were, that, we, we were with the two Peters, and I got I very, it, yeah. very excited about the idea of, of Phil Brown. That's a lot of talent there it in the really control is. room. Well, when you've got Graham producing as well and and Eric out in the on the floor playing, so that's that's a great session. There's eight eight takes of Yellow Brick Road here. Uh, you know, full starts, breakdown, and and they went with uh, take eight at the end. Yeah. Oh, wonderful! Follow me down the Yellow Brick Road to a land through a road tinted land where the faces are cool. The thing I found interesting about it is that Eric does seem to be, uh, we're talking about Yellow Brick Road, uh, Eric yeah. seems to be expanding the top. Yeah, it's, it's even got the spoken word bit like holding right. my shoe, isn't it? Um, it? It's not, I don't think it's musically that successful because it's kind of compulsively second-handed. Um, it sounds, the lyrics sound like Lucy in the Sky and... Uh, the changes are a little bit awkward, and it's kind of slightly forced psychedelica. It's, it reminds yes. me a bit. It reminds me slightly of early Elton John, Bernie Taupin songs from around that period, where they're kind of going through the psychedelic trip. Yeah, they're trip, definitely they're, they're trying to get themselves on on Hate Asbury, aren't they? They're really, yeah, they're yeah. trying to be hippies. They've grown their hair. I like it though, <laughs> and I love so, yeah, I love that yeah. groove. I love that kind of late eighties Manchester groove. You know, that was so huge. Uh, on the Manchester scene, you know, that very funky, sort of ahead of its time uh, rhythm. I think it's terrific, actually. I, I like it. It, mm. it excites me more than, um, than, than some of the kind of more straight-laced suit and tie stuff. Well, just on the, I guess on that point, Sean, I mean, you've got that great story that while they were recording all of this at Olympic Studios, 
I think you had the Stones recording at the same time next door, and uh, oh. there's this great story when when they were recording Uncle Joe the Ice Cream Man, <laughs> their sort of final single, where Mick Jagger, who obviously Eric had known from the early days of touring, you know, together in the uh, in the Mindbenders, mm. you know, popped his pops his head around the vocal booth door and says. You know why are you singing this shit? And uh, you know, I know Graham jokes about you know maybe putting the final nail in the in the coffin of the uh, of the mindbenders. Behind the counter selling ice cream, there stands a man the kids all know. He's got a smile that makes them love him, and they call him Uncle Joe. Um, you've got Eddie Kramer, you've got John Paul Jones. It's the same nucleus, isn't it, that recording around the same time. Yes. Um, the Graham Gorman thing, because that, that record, Uncle Joe the Ice Cream Man, was their last single in August 68. Um, and that, right. was the, uh, that was the final, apart from a, a stint in cabaret, that was the sort of final uh, nail in the coffin, I think, of the uh, of the Mindbenders. Mm. And uh, Olympic was like the, the original Strawberry South, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Going back to my new day and age a bit, um, apart from my, my joke about them sounding a little bit like the move, which I think they, they do, um, there's that lovely kind of roomy, cramped production that I, I really like from the ELO stuff and from Hot Legs, actually. And the, the kind of more rocky bluesier moments of hot legs sound a bit like new day and age like it's a, a very very sweaty tiny studio and um so I, I i kind of hear the origins of hot leg just there and then anyone else mm. hear that mm, i don't yeah it doesn't sound as bluesy as eric's stuff for the hot legs somehow it doesn't doesn't really remind to me mm. it's i'm just talking about the production okay uh yeah yeah, I guess so. So he may well have, he may, he may well just have tasted and, and heard things down in London um, that he, he took back up to Stockport with him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, for, for Eric, I mean, if you look at you know, how much he blossomed between uh, Yellow Brick Road and even The Man Who Loved Trees, I mean, it, yeah, Eric... Eric's melodies seem to be getting better, and I think that's kind of a foreshadowing of what was to come in the future. Right. Uh, he, he's starting to blossom as a writer, and he's starting to incorporate other things and other ideas. And even, you know, I'm sure he had a lot of influence on the uh, production style of the record too. And I think yes. he kind of again foreshadows what was to come later on with Hot Legs, and of course with 10 CC. Yeah, absolutely. It was a good stepping stone for him. Sure. There's one other track that I wanted to um, to kind of ask you guys about, uh, and it's one that I, I really like, actually. I'm not sure who wrote it. It might be an Eric tune. I think it was the B-side of a single in 67. The track's called It's Getting Harder All The Time. <laughs> Yeah. Did, did, Eric, did Eric write that? No, I don't no, think it, so. It's it just sounds a song like a, with love, isn't it? Yeah, it sounds it's like a, a Graham yeah. Goldman song to me. 
No, it's it's not. I don't I don't know who wrote it, but it wasn't an in-house thing. But yeah, I mean that's a it's pure pop, but it's a great track. I mean that sounds like a hit yeah. that uh, I think was thrown away because it wasn't a standalone single. It was on the B side of "To Sir with Love," wasn't it, Liam? In the in the UK, it was released as a single. It was the, oh. the B side in the states, but it's it, uh, yeah. There was a lot of a, there was a push behind it because obviously it coincided with the film, you know, coming out, and obviously there there two performances within the film, but. But it flopped um, in the UK, unfortunately. Mm. I, I don't think it's that great of a tune myself. I, you know, I, I went back and watched the clip from uh, "To Sir with Love," and you know, it just it just has that same boring riff in it, and, and the lyrics are a bit uninspired. And you know, and, and even watching the, I mean, again, you know, it, it's a bit too British for me, and and I, I don't. <laughs> I mean, Sidney Poitier's dancing can't even uh, save that. One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 or, I, or Lulu I making a cameo appearance. Yeah, or, yeah, or Lulu. Um, yeah. I, I, really... I, I laugh because the title of it—it's getting harder all the time. I mean, think about it. You know, it's oh no, it was the innocent sixties. I know, I know, I know. I'm being but, ha- <laughs> but having said that, I didn't even notice Sidney Poitier really. I, I was watching Judy Geeson. Was, uh, yeah. <laughs> I was watching Eric. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah swinging both ways, but hey, it's the, it's the 60s. Um, <laughs> yeah. Li- Liam, yeah. for you, um yeah. What do you feel is the, is the biggest importance of of the Mindbenders on the on the reason we're sitting here tonight? If you crystallize it. Well, in in a way, the biggest influence of the Mindbenders is them not being able to follow up on uh, groovy kind of love and splitting uh, because that was really the impetus for strawberry studios you know mm. if the mindbenders had continued as you know hit making combo who, who knows whether eric would have got into the studio business but i think you know it was the mindbenders coming to a to a conclu- you know conclusion and him thinking what next which opened up this vista which is obviously much more um you know no, no strawberry studios no 10cc you know it's as simple as that and i think also his, you know, his interest in becoming a studio engineer, and ultimately, the you know the contribution then he made to the amazing you know sound of Ten CC, you know the yes. detailed recordings. So, so I think in a way, bizarrely, the biggest influence was was running out of steam. But I guess it what it what it did was um, give Eric uh, a, t- a taste of fame on the sort of highs and lows of working within the music business. Yeah. You know, the importance of following up, being pigeonholed, maybe the dangers of, of mm-hmm. that. You know. There's various things, plus all the contacts, meeting Graham, you know, for the first time, working with him for the first time within that kind of world. So I think it's probably all those things. But I think for ultimately, it's probably the demise of the Mindbenders, which which opened up the world of 10CC ultimately. Yeah, that's a great insight, Liam. Uh, Thank you for re- that. Yeah. That's a really good summing up. been listening to the consequences podcast produced by paul mcnulty and sean mccreevy thanks for listening